Hello, everyone. Warm welcome to all of you back into Intersections. Our aspiration in Intersections is to do exactly that, is to create these points of confluence and connection between different aspects and parts of our life and of humanity. And today, I have the distinct honor and pleasure to break in some ways some new ground with us. And that new ground is the matter of spirit. In other words, when I have navigated the world of business, the world of business school, the world of academic and professional life, one of the questions that I'm left with as a little bit of a puzzlement is as to why when we do so much to nurture the intellect and more recently even to activate certain qualities of the heart as we seek to create a much more equal world, an equal society, a just society. Why is it that uh, for some reason in modern times, we tend to not very actively also invoke matters of the spirit. And so I can't think of a um, person within my network who I could feel more blessed with and joyful about bringing into focus for us as a catalyst for that conversation about what would it be if you and I and all of us were able to very comfortably and openly and committedly embrace you know, more of our soul's journey through everything we do in life and in leadership. It is a distinct privilege for me today to have in our midst someone who I am just so grateful for what it is that he brings to this conversation with us today. And this is the Reverend Phil Jackson, who is the priest in charge of the Trinity Church here in New York. Let me just share a couple of things with you about our guest today. Phil has had a very storied academic career from Amherst College to Yale Law School, and then ultimately also a degree in divinity from the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. He has served previously as an attorney in Honolulu, uh, was the rector of the Christ Church of Ascension in Paradise Valley in Arizona, joined the Trinity Church in 2015 as the vicar, and was also named the priest in charge in January 2020, in some ways just before this uh, huge cataclysmic moment in some ways in um, what we are facing in humanity's you know, history today with the pandemic. And um, that's all I want to say with you about, about Phil. But what I really want to do is invite him into our midst so that he can share his story with all of us more directly in his own words. So um, Phil, it is a real pleasure and joy to have you in our midst. Thank you for joining us. Oh, hi, Jindra. It is so good to see you and so good to, uh, to be part of this group. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on, and so good to see you. I don't know if people know this, but uh, I first met Hytendra Columbia Business School continuing education class, and that, that he taught, and I just admired, loved, uh, respected uh, his work from the very beginning. And then I brought him to Trinity to do something for my staff, and uh, we just stayed friends. And so uh, this has been you, your friendship has been just such a source of blessing and richness for me, hi Tendra, and thank you for inviting me. You know, thank you, Father Jackson. I mean, I, I have over the years realized how much um, I need to learn and I should learn and I can learn from, you know, from the audiences that one gets to be privileged to serve, like my MBA students and executives who come in that program that you've talked about. But you are just like an outshining example of that, where I stumble into such gold from within, within the folks that this work, you know, has me and get a chance to cross paths with. 
and I can just reciprocate what you just said. It has been a tremendous joy and a privilege for me to have this association with you, which is why I want to share you, you know, with, with others here, in, in addition to um, reconnect you with some of your own congregation. Let's do this. Let's start by just taking a minute to help people understand the path you're on. And then I want to turn it very quickly to your own personal journey. So okay. by the path, I mean that you are an you know, Episcopalian minister, right? And so what does that mean for those of us who are not very initiated into that aspect of the Christian community? Sure. Uh, the Episcopal Church is a Protestant denomination within uh, the Catholic, within the, the, the larger uh, Christian uh, body. Um, we were started uh, when Henry VIII uh, broke off from the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the uh, 16th century. And we are the American branch in the, Epis the Episcopal Church in the United States. We're the American branch of the uh, what's called the Worldwide Anglican Communion. We're an autonomous branch. Uh, we don't have a pope. We have a presiding bishop. His name is Michael Curry, Bishop Michael Curry. Uh, some of you may remember him uh, because he famously preached at the uh, the royal wedding uh, and, and did such a, a beautiful job preaching about love. Let's get to then take it from the broader church to your role. So you are the priest in charge of Trinity Church. And so what is that about? Well, Trinity is, is uh, one of the oldest Episcopal churches and one of the oldest churches in the United States. We actually predate the United States of America. We were founded in 1697 in New York, and we are in the same place that we have been, uh, not in the same church. Uh, we're, in the, we're actually on our third church now. Uh, but we have been in Lower Manhattan uh, ever since 1697. And my role as priest in charge is I am, uh, I guess the best way to put it is I'm sort of, I sort of oversee uh, the entire, uh, all aspects of the life at, at Trinity Church. Right. And, uh, you know, I learned something delightful, uh, in fact, from you the other day, which is a connection between the institution that I serve and the institution that you serve. <laughs> Could you share that with everyone? Yeah, a lot of people don't know, but uh, Trinity Church founded King's College. I think it was in 1752. And uh, uh, King's College, after the Revolutionary War, had to change its name uh, because they were uh, the young uh, country was no longer uh, expressing an allegiance to the King of England. And they changed the name to, ready, Columbia College. <laughs> so Columbia, where you teach, uh, I'd like to say we we founded you, buddy. We, we founded you. <laughs> right. Well, I'm so glad, besides founding us, that we found each other, you know, in this moment as well. So, Father Jackson, let's turn the attention for a minute to your roots and your journey. And I am curious about it because when I interact with you, when I see the storied, for example, academic career you pursued, the early professional career you pursued, you know, you don't you don't feel any different from any of us who are here. You know, you you pursue the same kind of you know hungers for outer success and some of these um, you know accoutrements you know that that we get when we excel academically and professionally, etc. And yet, it seems like at some point you pivoted into a life of uh, tremendous purpose and uh, soul searching and uh, a nurturing of the spirit and a service to the community of a form that very rarely so is a choice that uh, we make. And so I'd be very curious as to how that journey began for you and what got you to the place you are. Could you talk a little bit about your yeah, personal journey? Sure. I grew up in Chicago. Uh, my father uh, was a dentist and my mother a homemaker. 
and in my household, uh, we really did not go to church at all. Uh, in, in my in my house growing up, uh, for my parents, education uh, and success in education was uh, was the highest value. And uh, my my older brother uh, went off to Harvard, and I went off to Amherst, and my little brother uh, went off to Williams. Uh, my older brother is a cardiologist now. My younger brother is a judge in California. And uh, and from a very early age, I I wanted to be a lawyer, and I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And I wanted to be a really good and successful trial lawyer. That was, uh, <laughs> and, and that was very important to me to do that. And I sort of arranged my life around that uh, that goal. And so I, uh, I ended up uh, going to Amherst, uh, majored in history, uh, graduated with honors, and did the next step up the ladder and moved down uh, moved down the hi- uh, highway ninety one, I guess it is down. Uh, to, uh, to New Haven uh, to go to Yale. And, you know, the, the funny thing is I started recognizing almost immediately that uh, that something, even though this had been this, this great path that I was on and this great goal that I had, that I, I just wondered if it was the right path for me. I just, uh, I, I don't know how else to say it, but, but uh, I tend to, something inside of me felt a little bit of a disconnect. But because I did not grow up with any sort of uh, overt uh, faith or faith teaching, I really didn't have language for it. <laughs> I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have any way to express or to describe or to talk about that inner uh, sort of disjunction that I had. So all I had was the path. Uh, so I just stayed on that path, which I'm sure right. many, of, uh, many of the people listening on have probably uh, been on that path uh, as well in their lives. So, so this path you're talking about is this uh, socially sort of, you know, shaped and influenced, you know, set of, uh, you know, priorities and values and education we get as to what like a successful life is about. Exactly. Um, and exactly. then and then you're saying something started to happen that made you want to look deeper. What was that moment and what was that chapter like where you started to do a much more serious investigation for yourself. Well, that's where that's where it got interesting. After I graduated from uh, uh, from law school, instead of going back to Chicago, which which is what I was supposed to do, I on a whim uh, moved out to Honolulu and uh, got a uh, my first job there was was selling golf clubs to Japanese tourists. <laughs> I did that. I did that for two weeks and realized that maybe if I was going to, if I, if I wanted to stay in Honolulu, which I really loved Honolulu, uh, I, I should probably find a, a more lucrative job. I, uh, I ended up working, uh, getting, uh, getting a job as an associate attorney at a wonderful small uh, boutique law firm uh, in downtown Honolulu and did that for two and took the bar exam, passed it, uh, you know, started uh, practicing for these, these guys and, uh, and really, and really loved it at first. Uh, after a couple of years, I think the best way to put it, high tender, is I, I realized I, I began to feel that what I was doing was not what I wanted to do forever. And I don't know how else to put that. Uh, there's no, I mean, I don't want to put any fancy language on it. I didn't have any fancy language at the time. I just felt like, I just kept asking myself, is this, is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? And I, but I didn't know what else to do because this is what I had spent you know, and by this point, I'm 27 years old. I'd spent 27 years getting to this thing. And now all of a sudden, it felt as if that thing was not maybe what, what, what I 
was expecting or what uh, or that it, or maybe and okay i will use I, I will use a little bit of language that i wouldn't have used then it felt like my life felt at the time like it would not be fulfilling and and uh, i wouldn't have used that language at the time but uh, that is what I, I will say now. And so I'm practicing law. I'm, I'm in my you know, late 20s and feeling like, wow, am I, how am I going to do this for the next 50 years? What, uh, how, how are we going to do this? And out of the blue, truly out of the blue, some voice inside of me said, Phil, you should go to church. And I, I, and I, tender, I can't, I mean, just something inside of me just said, you should go to church. Mind you, I never went to church. <laughs> I never went to church. So I uh, I looked in the uh, you'll love this these are the date the days late 80s early 90s pre internet I looked in the yellow pages under church <laughs> to try to find something that might uh, something that might look interesting uh, and I found a uh, I, I found a Unitarian church that I went to uh, that was near my house and went there uh, one Sunday and then uh, uh, the following week I was driving back. I was I'm in Honolulu. I'm driving back from the University of Hawaii where I had some legal work uh, that I did. I'm driving back and I met a stop sign, I tender. And this voice, again, this thing sort of inside of me, I'm not talking about like an auditory voice, but something inside of me said, no, there, go there. And I, I, I looked around, I looked around and, and to my left, there was this church had this sign that said St. Clement's Episcopal Church. I and it said Holy Eucharist Sunday at 10 a.m. The only thing I knew on that on that sign was Sunday 10 a.m. That was the only thing that made any sense uh, to me at the time. And and so I went the next Sunday. And the uh, the best way to put it, Hytendra, it is that from the very first opening of that service, I felt like I was home. I I don't know how to put it. I, I just felt. I felt like I was home. I felt like I was with family, and I felt like family was speaking a language that I that I had never heard spoken, but apparently had always known. Yeah, that is so beautiful. Yeah, that is so beautiful, and um, I am finding moments there that I'm relating to in terms of um, some of the stirrings that um, you know that I've gone through. I am sure every one of us who is uh, hearing you today is connecting what uh, what you've gone through with uh, at least some moments, perhaps fleeting, perhaps some they dug into or they just kind of deflected, right? That that they might have felt as well. So that is so powerful and so beautiful. Let me ask you this. Um, in those moments, how is it that you were able to take pause and really pay attention to that inner voice? Was it a habit and a discipline that you had already built? Was there already a fair amount of, let's say, scriptural study that you were doing or a connection with some kind of higher power? Or was it just something so fresh and different and new that seemed to speak to that yearning that had started to get generated within you that you just couldn't ignore it, even though it was a fresh, new you know, experience for you to listen and tune in to that inner voice? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I like to say that God used a two by four upside my head uh, to, get, <laughs> to get my attention uh, on this thing. And um, uh, what happened was that I started going to this church every week. I would go. And after a little while, I was introduced to the priest. Actually, the priest came up to me and said, who the heck are you? And what, I mean, like, what, 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 come talk to me. Tell me what's going on. We became friends. And there was a family that, uh, that, that kind of adopted me because I was a young guy and they would give me things to read. And, and, uh, what, what really did it, High Tender, was one day I was reading a chapter of, of a book. The father of this 
family gave me. And it was a chapter on what's called the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement in Christianity, which is that Jesus died for our sins. And I read this chapter, and then I, this was on a Saturday, and I went out and I took a, I was taking a, I took a hike in the, in the uh, sort of the, I lived up in the mountains above Honolulu, and I went on and took a hike. And as I'm taking that hike, I, I don't know how, how else to explain it, but for about 10 minutes, God actually showed me that the atonement was true and that Jesus died for my sins. And at that moment, I'm totally by myself. There's no, <laughs> no, you know, no one around. I, I, I don't know what prompted me, but I said, I said, Lord, I, I give you my life. I give you my life and I will go wherever you want me to go. And just right there, that was my conversion experience. I, I was, you know, I was a knuckleheaded 27 year, 27 year old. There was no great background in this. I, but, but I tell you, when God speaks, and I believe that God speaks to all of us, all of us, every single one of us, it's hard not to listen. Our world makes it very easy to not listen. But when you hear God's voice, it's profound. <laughs> it's profound. And it was a real blessing. And it turned, it turned my life on an axis of just high tender, like, boom. Oh, that, that, that is so that is so beautiful. I see I see that vision of you stepping away from your life, uh, being on that hike, being in nature, maybe some amount of quietude, and you perhaps just created the conditions where when you combine that with the hunger that you'd started to really broadcast out there that I'm searching, I'm looking, the combination of that just allowed this voice to uh, come and guide you towards that ne next step, which is which is beautiful. Yes, and maybe maybe what happened is I allowed myself to hear it. <laughs> you know? And I think because I yeah. sometimes think that's true for all of us at, at one time, we, we know, you know, God's out here speaking, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we we distract ourselves and, and we have, the, oh, but I got to do this, got to do that, uh, da, 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 da. And God will wait, you know, God will wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. It reminds me of a quote from my uh, spiritual master, Yogananda. He said that when we become silent, then God breaks his silence. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. It's like God saying, are you done yet? Are you done talking yet? <laughs> Are you done? Because I, I got something I'd like to say, but we'll wait till you're done, and then and then and then, then I'll say something, right? <laughs> that's beautiful. So that starts you on a whole new journey. Got you into divinity school, and it got you into a new vocation that yeah. uh, has become your life ever since. Yeah. One thing I, I guess I would like to say about that that next uh, that next chapter in my life of going to seminary and and becoming a priest is that, you know, because I had been on that, that achievement track for so long, uh, one of the things about the achievement track is that you end up living most of your life right up here in your head, right? Right up here in your head. And you, we develop, we develop this, this very robust thinking system and our ability to use our brains and think that we can uh, believe that we can think our way through anything or through any problems or anything. And we have this kind of, you know, muscle builder kind of head if we could see what it looked like spiritually. And frequently what happens is that our soul, our soul is not fed and developed in the same way when we're on when we're on that track. And what I what I really learned, Hytender, in those first several years is that I had to move out of here the head and move down to here into the heart and into my soul. And I needed to spend time as much time. And I think this is true for, for all humanity. We have to spend as much time developing 
our spirit, our soul, whatever you want to call it, as we do our heads. We prioritize the head and the intellect, and the intellect's a good thing. You know, I love air conditioning right now. Glad we have it. But uh, but we don't spend as much time on our souls. And we end up mostly feeding our souls the soul equivalent of junk food. You know, the soul, the soul equivalent of McDonald's or, uh, or you know, just, just junk. Uh, and the high achievement world that many of us uh, live in or lived in or uh, were shaped by largely pretends that the soul doesn't really exist or that that, that the whole to be a whole person uh well you know like you can you can go do that on on the side the thing that that i find most challenging about liberal arts education which i love is that it doesn't uh, even though it's it's purportedly interested in the whole person it spends almost no time on the development of that thing which will turn out to be the most important thing about us, which is our soul. Yeah. Father Jackson, you made a very powerful comment the other day in our conversation on this very theme. Uh, you are on the board of trustees of uh, one of the um, very renowned colleges uh, here in America, Amherst College, and uh, they're lucky to have you, you know, in that capacity. But you mentioned something about what you're seeing with this generation of um, high-performing uh, students uh, on a mm. campus. Like, uh, and you also cited a book that uh, gave you a little bit of perspective on this. Could you, could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. What I said is, and, and I, love, I love young people and seeing them develop and grow. What, I, what I've noticed since I've been on, on our board of trustees and so I get to spend more time on campus is these young people are smarter <laughs> than we were. Uh, they work harder. They do more interesting things. I my my only thing is I just worry again about this question of are they just doing the next thing to do the next thing, or do they really are they really thinking about what it is goal what what purpose is in life or what or what are the reasons why they're doing these things? And I feel like so this book that I was I, I mentioned to you is called the Meritocracy Trap, which I recommend to anyone. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book, uh, and it sort of is point on with this that we're we've got a generation uh, we are we are sort of uh, we're sort of cranking out generations that that work hard and have to jump through these hoops and yet the meaning for these hoops other than getting the right the you know getting the next right thing so that you know the right kindergarten gets you into the right grammar school then gets you into the right high school then gets you to the right college and then the professional school to the right job and at the end of that cycle or at the end of that path um i think we're going to what what worries me is that we're going to end up with people who who say why did i just do all that why did i do all that what was the purpose of that and so um, I think at Amherst, I, I just love seeing the kids and talking to them because they are thinking about this stuff. They are. They, they're, they're smart. You know, they, they get it. Um, and I think one of the things that the pandemic time and then the, uh, the racial injustice protests and whatnot that are going on is they're engaging in things of the heart, of the soul. You know, they're 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 given an opportunity to to really see things in ways that might alter the approach to that meritocracy trap. So it's a it's a rich time we're in right now. It's if we if yeah. we if we take advantage of it, it's a really rich time. Yeah, there is. Um, it's interesting because I've been reading some Pew research, you know, which um, as an organization does a fair amount of discovery around where people's um, opinions and positions are on, on matters of faith. 
I'm sure you know from some of the research. Uh, but it's interesting because the percentage of, and so, you know, most of the, you know, focus is on, on America, but they do some international as well. I'm a little bit more familiar with, with, with America here. So I'm speaking from, from that vantage point, recognizing, respecting, we have a global audience here. But in America, for example, one of the things they've, they've uh, shown is that there is a large number of people who actually do believe that there is some kind of like higher power and force right. out there. There is something more to them than just their mortal frame. And yet, to me, it's an irony that that is something that is um, not actively invested in as right. part of our, you know, social milieu and dialogue and um, just everyday happenstance conversations and right. in business or in the university, et cetera. We're almost taught to be very thoughtful and careful to, you know, draw draw that boundary and kind of like keep that more into, like you said, just like you do that on your own time somewhere here. Right. And one of the things I'd love to have you explore for us, because you counsel so many, both within your congregation and you're also telling us now here at Amherst, that if uh, there are those amongst us who recognize the importance of that, not just the legitimacy, but the importance of that, and they want to deepen they're anchoring in that, but they don't have that good fortune of having that voice just come to them with great clarity like you did in that moment yet. They haven't had that yet. What are some practical steps they can take? Go through their own process of discovery to connect with their soul. And then the second part would be to also learn to more authentically express it in a world that um, you know doesn't like actively invite you on an everyday basis mm -hmm. to engage and express that you know, openly. Can I, if you don't mind, I gender, can I put that into a, uh, to answer the question, to put it into a, a little larger framework uh, that, that helps me understand what the issues involved are. And I call that uh, sort of the, the care of the soul and the two halves of life. And what I, what I mean by the two halves of life, and I'm, I'm stealing this unabashedly from a, uh, a good friend of mine, the author, uh, Father Richard Rohr, a, Franc a Franciscan uh, priest and uh, friar and just all around wise man. He talks about the two halves of life being the first half, he calls the path of ascent. It's going up. And in that first path, we could call that also the achievement path, right? It's where we're largely taking things on and building ourselves. So we're, we're going to school, uh, we're getting a job, we're getting married perhaps and starting a family. And in that first half of life, we're mostly concerned with the questions of the ego. And those questions are questions like, what kind of job am I going to have? How do people look at me? Uh, how do they treat me? Um, do I get the respect that I deserve? Yada, yada, yada. Those kinds of questions are questions of the ego and the first half of life. And they're the appropriate questions for that first half of life. What Richard Rohr says is that sometime, now this is not on a clockwork kind of thing, but uh, sometime between the age of 40, let's say, and 60, it could be earlier, it could be later, uh, but sometime uh, we hit what's called, what he calls a crisis of limitations. And that is a loss of some kind. That's a loss of perhaps a job or of a relationship or uh, of health or a loss of someone close to us, a death. But something, something in this period we hit up against and shows us that life is actually limited uh, in some way. And Rohr says, uh, Rohr says that this is this crisis of limitations is God's way of inviting us into a, the second half of life, which he calls 
the path of descent or going down. And in that path, which he also calls the path of the soul, our soul starts asking its questions, which are entirely different questions than the questions of the first half of life. When we get to the second half of life, we ask, we start asking ourselves questions like, have I loved well? Um, has my work been meaningful and with purpose? What happens when I die? Who is God? And what does it mean to have faith? Those are the types of questions that we start to ask ourselves when we get into that second half uh, of life. Those are, the uh, again, what he calls the questions of the soul. And the secret of the path of descent, and this is where practice can come in in just a minute I'm going to talk about, but the secret of that path is to begin, instead of to taking things onto oneself, it's to begin to give oneself away, to begin to give oneself away. So if you're a person who feels longing, and this could, you could start this now, right? Even if you're not in the second half of life, but uh, you can start this now with some practices. Begin giving yourself away. Go volunteer for something. Mentor people, right? Mentor young people. Uh, work for a service organization in your spare time if you can. But begin to give away the self. Because what Rohr says, and I have found this to be universally true, Hytendra, is that the purpose of the second half of life, the descent, the giving of ourselves away, is to begin to prepare ourselves for death which is the great giving away of oneself and the, the giving away of oneself and the aspect of life that we are most uncomfortable in the West talking about. But it's a preparation for death, right? When we're, we, you, I mean, like, how would you like to, to approach death? Which, by the way, I hate to, we all are going to, right? We all are going to. Would you rather approach death afraid and terrorized by it, but ready to give it away, to give that last ounce of, of this life we cling to, even be ready to give that away in gratitude and happiness at the end of our lives? How would you like to approach that? So some of the things we can be, the, the biggest thing we can begin to do is to give ourselves away to others in service of others. That's numero uno, because that's what the big, that's what the big, that's what the big ticket secret is is to give yourself away, is to give yourself away. That's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it's uh, very stirring to hear you speak about death with uh, so much, um, you know, significance and uh, invite us to reframe our relationship with it. Let's turn to one very important influence in your life, uh, because you've been so thoughtful in citing some of these uh, readings and references that have shaped your thinking. Uh, and there's one which we should also do justice to. And uh, I know about it because when you came to Colombia and we had our first interaction, you shared such a beautiful and inspiring story about your journey towards this teacher and uh, his uh, place of like physical habitat and, uh, and what you experienced in making that pilgrimage that I, uh, I've never been able to forget. I've never been able to get that moment of how you, you know, shared something so beautiful from your life. And I'd like you to offer that gift, you know, to our community here as well. So can you talk about this one very pivotal influence and, um, and your journey to um, getting inspiration and learning from it? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about, and, and people in my, people on, on the, uh, the webcast of my congregation will know this, but I'm always happy to talk about Thomas Merton. Uh, Thomas Merton, uh, who I consider a living, even though he's, he died in 1968, a living spiritual father of mine. Uh, uh, Merton was a, a Roman Catholic uh, uh, Cistercian monk 
Trappist monk uh, who lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane outside of Louisville, Kentucky for 27 years. He went into the monastery late and stayed the rest of his life. And even though he went in for solitude, he would eventually become an international figure uh, uh, known all over the world for his spirituality, his openness. And in particular, I, I, I think the story I'd, I'd like to reference, if I can, uh, Hytender, about Thomas Merton is memorialized in uh, at the corner of 4th and Walnut in, in Louisville, because it was a, a pivotal experience in Merton's uh, spiritual life. And one that uh, one that I can resonate with uh, on on many different uh, levels. Uh, what happened was in, in 1968, uh, 1958, uh, I think it was February of he was. Uh, he had been in the monastery for about 17 years at that point, and he had to go into town. They're, they're about an hour away from Louisville, so he had to go into town for something. And he was—he uh, finds himself at rush hour standing on the corner of Fourth and Walnut. And you can—I think we we, might, we may have a picture of it to show people later, but uh, uh, it's memorialized. You can actually stand on the corner of Fourth and Walnut. Uh, Walnut is now uh, Muhammad Ali Boulevard in. Uh, in Louisville, but it was it was Fourth and Walnut back then. He's standing on the corner, and when he wrote about it later, uh, he's standing on the corner at rush hour, and all of a sudden, he said he had he had the awareness that he as he he, he writes uh, that I loved all of these people, and that we were all shine. He said I see them all shining like the sun, and. In all of them, he saw the radiance of God in all of us. And he had what is a remarkable mystical experience, but one which across faith traditions is, is reflective of, to me, an authentic uh, experience of God because it is unitive. That is, that is in Merton's experience and experiences that I have had, others who I know, uh, people I've read from a thousand years ago, from across tradition, um, the experience uh, of God is one of unity, that we are all, all of this, not just us humans, but all of creation, all of everything, all of soul, all of being is one. It's unitive. And the most anti-God thing we can do is to break ourselves off into individual chunks, is to individualize ourselves and to think that we are outside of the unity of God's being. Uh, Merton taught me that deeply. And from that moment in his life, he then embraced, <laughs> like truly, I mean, you talk about like a, a car wheel just like screeching off in a different direction. Merton then got interested in world faiths. Uh, became interested in Islam, Buddhism. I mean, just you could Taoism, I and mean, just just got just went way way into exploring faiths around the world. Um, and he ended up dying uh, in Bangkok uh, at a retreat that he was helping lead uh, on the intersection between of monasticism and the Buddhist tradition and the Christian tradition, and exploring that with Buddhist monks and. and uh, he was tragically uh, electrocuted. Uh, it was a, it was a it was a freak accident, uh, and uh, in, in 1968. But it was interesting that this unitive experience he had on the corner of Fourth and Walnut in in Louisville just once again just changed his life onto a different uh, trajectory. It's beautiful. 
beautiful. Yeah, I uh, I hadn't known about him until you shared, you know, your um, story uh, about him, and uh, it's led me down the path of studying him, you know, a little bit, and um, it, it's been it's been so rewarding because um, I love to find these examples of mystics who are both deeply committed to their path and at the same time deeply celebratory, you know, of uh, other traditions and paths that some people are doing their own good work in to right. come to ascend the same mountaintop, <laughs> you know. And right. in his case, he really lived that principle so powerfully and so beautifully. A lot of his writing is so eloquent. His uh, quotes and, you know, ideas are just so well phrased and, and all of that. So for those of us who haven't been, um, you know, aware of, uh, you know, uh, St. Merton, right, until now, I, I, would, I would recommend, uh, as you're doing, Phil, that uh, he would, he'd be a tremendous um, resource for, for people to study. And I, I love the way you talked about how uh, he's, he's a living presence, you know, in, in, in your life. It, it reminds me of a story of, um, you know, this one individual who goes to this, you know, well-known kind of spiritual figure, you know, of his time and, uh, you know, and goes to him and says, sir, I'd like you to be my spiritual master. And, and that individual looks at him and says, um, you know, I think you already have a path, isn't it? You already have a spiritual master. He says, no, but I want somebody living because he's dead. <laughs> and the spiritual master looks at him and smiles and he says, he is not dead. He is living. You are dead. You need to wake up. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know, just yeah. uh, if, if I could say something else about practice. So, uh, and, and for our, for people that are listening that that may be interested in something like this. So, uh, Gethsemane Abbey uh, is a place I go to every year uh, on retreat for for five days. And uh, and this year I had the opportunity to bring to bring some of my staff. Uh, from Trinity uh, on retreat. And it's a silent monastery. You know, you're not really allowed to talk and they pray uh, eight times a day. The first uh, service is at is at 3.15 a.m. And then the next one's at 5.30. I mean, it's, it's you know, they're, uh, the, the monks are, are very, are, are very rigorous in their discipline. Now, of course, you can do whatever you want there uh, and, and go to wherever, uh, to whatever the services you want. But so I, I brought this group from New York City to the uh, to the countryside of, of uh, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and before we all went, people were asking me questions. You know, I, they'd say, "Phil, oh, I don't know if I can, if I'll be able to do this. I don't know if uh, you know I'll be able to be quiet. I don't know, you know." Da, da. I tell you, uh, Hi Tendra, within a day and a half, we were all saying, "Oh my gosh, how come? I, how can we come back next year?" One of the things that we can all do beginning now, because now and now's a good time, is, is encourage a little silence in your life. <laughs> a little silence, a little solitude, you know, turn off the, uh, turn off the Netflix, <laughs> turn off the, uh, uh, turn off the, because a lot of that is, is junk food for the soul too, you know. But, but encourage, you know, take some time to meditate, to, to, to practice silence, uh, to practice solitude. You know, Thomas Merton, who was their most famous, uh, I mean, he, you know, he wrote all these books and he's famous all over the world, da, 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 da. And when I first went there, you know, I was this big Merton groupie and I went there and I, when the, uh, the brother monk was, was checking me in, I said, I said, uh, listen, sir, can you tell me where Merton's grave is? Cause I want to go, you know, I, I want to go see it. And I, I assumed that it was going to be this, you know, kind of granite monument to Thomas Merton and, you know, probably a statue or something. And he goes, uh, he goes, you see that tree out there? He goes, uh, go, go down towards the tree. It's the one second row in uh, from the left. <laughs> 
And 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 Merton's Merton's marker is, and I love this reflection on death. Merton's marker is just like everyone else's. <laughs> it's just like everyone else's. And isn't that true about death, right? <laughs> Our marker is just like everyone else's. So powerful, so beautiful. Is uh, Thomas Merton really alive in the memory of people of uh, Louisville? I mean, are they are they sort of like really um, continuing to be aware of uh, you know this great personage in the midst? Um, not sure as much. Papers and, and things are at Bellarmine University, which is in outside of, in Louisville. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it's our age, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I I don't get the sense that he is when I when I go there uh, every year. Yeah. I've been going for twelve. 13, 14 years, but uh, certainly is, he certainly is for me. He certainly yeah. is for me. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that, uh, you know, your your journey with, with uh, learning and connecting with, uh, with with Thomas Merton. You were speaking a while back about giving, you know, giving yourself away. And um, I talked about her work with Mother Teresa. And I remember like you were just sharing your impressions of meeting some of her missionary, missionaries of charity. So oh, the yeah. nuns order. Because yeah, yeah. Uh, can you share that? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, uh, several years ago when she uh, when she was canonized, um, I was invited to be the Episcopal Church representative in New York City to the uh, the canonization mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, with uh, uh, Cardinal Dolan, and uh, so I went, and it was remarkable. It was, it was it was lovely, but but the the truly lovely thing was afterwards I got to go to a reception where uh, her sisters uh, who live in New York were all there, and I got to tell you, Hytendra, the most joyous, I, I mean, I, it sounds corny, but like people, these these women just radiated a joy, and I mean, I mean, not happy, you know, like sort of it, but joy, authentic joy that was just like breathtaking to be around, breathtaking to be around. Um, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, but it was, it, it was, it was such an, an honor and uh, just a blessing in my life to be, to even get to meet some of them and, and to be around them. Father Jackson, we are living in a time where on the one hand, there are some tremendous new aspirations being unleashed on this planet for taking a relook at how we are, you know, comporting, you know, with each other and how we are really connecting with humanity. The anti-race movement, for example, anti-racism, anti-racism movement, right? That is, uh, you know, surrounding all of us. And uh, part of that is also having uh, people, you know, seek to invite a revision of our understanding of history to get more closer to the truth. And right. some of that is opening us up to a new reflection on America's roots. You know, the founding of the of, of the country, the Declaration of Independence, the you know, the founding fathers who are part of that. And in some ways, you're connected, you know, to that history because um, of George Washington, you know, our first president, and he had something really strong in the history of his presidency and Trinity Church, et cetera. Could you just talk about that for a minute? And more importantly, talk about what is your counsel and your point of view to those of us who might be, let's say, hurting about um, wanting to feel a great sense of patriotism and connection and inspiration from the roots of the country, but at the right. same time are you know having to absolutely honestly face up to some pretty dire and dismal you know, aspects of the history as well. Absolutely. You bet. Uh, like you said, Hytendra, uh, Trinity uh, 
since we date to 1697, uh, we are deeply implicated in everything that is part of the United States, uh, that would become the United States. Uh, If you look, if you stand at the door of Trinity Church and look down, straight down Wall Street, you can see the spot where the uh, African slave market uh, stood at the corner of uh, Water Street and Wall. Uh, there's a marker. There's a, a plaque. Um, our current church, which was uh, finished in 1846, just think about that year I gave you, 1846. In 1846, in New York City, you would have seen slaves, black slaves, walking up and down the streets. You would have seen, uh, you would have seen slaves working, uh, probably helping build Trinity Church. I like to say also that in 1839, I think it was 38, 39, when uh, when Frederick Douglass uh, 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 broke to his freedom uh, and came north. Uh, he crossed over on a boat from New, from the New Jersey side to Manhattan and would have, you can, you can actually see the spot where he landed. And it was about a 10 minute walk uh, from the spot where he landed to St. Paul's Chapel, which is one of our, our churches. We need to know this stuff. We need to know and remember that New York uh, was based on the slave slave trade. That's where its money came from. And it was deeply implicated in, uh, uh, don't forget, New York was uh, was very very ambivalent about uh, about the Civil War and being in the North. Very ambivalent about that. At the same time, and this is what we we were talking about uh, the other day, Hytendra. At the same time, I think we also, when we approach history these days, uh, and I was a, a history major in college, and and uh, still read uh, fairly widely in in history. Um, we have to remember to to approach history uh, with a fair amount of humility. And what I mean by that is, you know, now there's this, you know, there are a lot of movements to tear things down and get rid of the excise things from uh, from historical memory. Uh, okay, I mean, I, I can I, I, I get the impulse. I, I caution us, though, and this is where the humility comes in. And I ask people, in 200 years, what do you think they're going to say about us? Um, I can tell you some things they're going to say about us. They're going to say they knew about global warming. They knew that if they kept living like that, if they kept their reliance upon fossil fuels, if they kept living the lifestyles that they wanted to live, they they knew that it was having harmful effects on the world that they would pass off. You know, shame on them, right? Shame on them. You know, we will be judged for things like that. We will be judged too. Uh, if we think that somehow we have reached the the apotheosis of historical morality, guess again, <laughs> guess again. So, you know, I, I think it's imperative that we learn about our history, but we, I think we should also approach it with uh, with a little humility, as I said, with a little humility. Uh, now, now, my all that being said, uh, the Confederate monuments, <laughs> this is a little, maybe this is a tear them down. <laughs> get rid of, they, this is the losing side. Tear, tear them down, get them out of there. Done, done, done. Um, but uh, uh, I think that, that we do, though, have to approach history with, with humility. These are, these are people like us and uh, living in times that, uh, yeah, living in times like us. That's where I wonder what people say, what they will say in, in, in 50 years, like, why wouldn't they wear masks? They knew that wearing a mask would cut down on the transmission of this thing. What was so hard about wearing a mask? And yet people don't, right? I mean, so (laughs) so there you go. That's, that's, I resonate with that a lot. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that up and sharing that, um, that, that thought experiment. What a powerful thought experiment. 
looking back 200 years from now and asking how will, how will humanity of that time judge humanity of this time? It seems to suggest that um, m- maybe one way to really be energized also and inspired by you know some of those contributors of the past is to see humanity as a work in progress see a certain evolution that is happening, you know, respect the early bricklayers of that path, you know, who, uh, you know, kind of like started us off on something which was imperfect and small, but directionally it was taking us to where we are today. And then it is our responsibility now to add more bricks to that path, isn't it? Exactly. That's a great way to put it. It's a beautiful way to put it, Hajindra. Add more bricks to the path. Yeah. So beautiful. Uh, We are on time. It is, um, you know, with strong mixed feelings that I am... uh, noting that and you know needing to bring us to uh you know to a point of like closure uh because this has been such a beautiful conversation father jackson any sort of like final thought from you and let's turn it to like if you had to invite our community to take on some one thing in their lives in the days ahead if they are inspired by your story to deepen their own self-realizational journey what could that one final counsel or idea from you, Um, To remember that everything we do has the potential for adding to the sum total of good in this, uh, in this world and um, to have the courage to add it because it could take courage to, uh, to add to the sum total of good in this world. But do it, but do it. And we all can do it and, and have it to do. Uh, that's what I would say, Hytendra. Yeah. You know, that is so beautiful. Just in closing here with you, know, with you uh, Father Jackson, I just want to highlight some of the things that we've taken away from you. You know, we've started with um, you sharing your story and how climbing, you know, up that ladder of success, you finally started to, you know, pay attention to certain stirrings from within. And then there were some, when you had that hunger and you had that interest and that attunement, there was something that spoke to you. And so you got practical guidance and advice. And it came first from within. Then it came from some small actions that you engaged in on the outside, like that yellow book moment, which was amazing. <laughs> you know, when we spoke about that, about churches. Um, and when you w- went on that hike and y- you, got, you, you, got, you got, you know, a higher power, you had God like speak to you in, in, in a very clear way, but you'd created those conditions for silence where that could happen. Then you had the courage to really you know, in some ways question and feel comfortable in being contrarian to some of the, you know, tried and tested paths to really find your path. And in doing that, you finally got to connect with the community, initially with that Episcopalian church, you know, where you went to, where they took you in their fold, but then ultimately beyond that to the school and the training and the uh, service and vocation that you've been part of. So it got more and more solidified over time. You also spoke to us about how there's this, you know, soul enriching need that all of us have and that you're seeing in the young people that they're deeply otherwise you know talented but but that part sometimes when it's missing can be can be a, a very hollow space that any or all of us are yearning to fulfill you talked about this you know midlife kind of moment where you go from the uh, what do you call it the ascending yeah. to the descent the ascent to the descent to give yourself away that was such a beautiful idea this idea of giving yourself away until your dying breath because we ultimately have to get there where we as you said have to give everything away that was really powerful uh, and then you talked about thomas merton as uh, such an important influence and what an incredible force in being very devoted to his faith but also being very integrative and you know wanting to borrow and learn and understand from others as well that that was that was so beautiful yeah. um and then you've finally taken us to this place where you've also helped us recognize that humanity is on this journey and we can all collectively take it to a 
to an even more beautiful place by making our contribution, being that perfect drop from our side in this ocean of humanity. Yes, Thank sir. you so much.